You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 27. Life of an Actor. A small round papier-mâché snuffbox from the 19th century. The lid depicts a group of theatricals, some in costume, enjoying a social gathering. They stand in front of a large staircase, all attempting to outpose each other, with two of the group engaged in a fight. Above them on the staircase are two further members of the ensemble, one assisting a man in a top hat as he projects a spray of green vomit over the banister to the party below. The illustration bears the caption, Life of an Actor, at Refreshment. Before beginning this paragraph, I decided to simply Google Life of an Actor and arrived down a rabbit hole from which I am still reluctant to emerge. As I suspected, the box was one of a series, but the only other example from the same set I could find is held by the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. The box in the V&A, called Life of an Actor, Empty Boxes, depicts a play being performed to an almost entirely empty house. Both the V&A snuff box and mine were manufactured in 1840 by Henry Clay's Papier-Mâché Company of Birmingham. But there's more. The V&A page also told me how the illustration used on the box came from a book called, not surprisingly, Life of an Actor by Pierce Egan and published in 1825, Its success was in part due to Theodore Lane's extensive colour plates and engravings used to illustrate the book, and it is on the online edition of Egan's book that I found the original picture in all its technicolour glory. Pierce Egan was already an acclaimed author and satirist when he wrote the book. A few years earlier, in 1821, he wrote Life in London, which he later adapted for the stage. It was the first play to run for over a hundred performances in London, and its new title, Tom and Jerry, became slang for a rough alehouse in Britain and the name of a cocktail in America. But whether it gave its name to a cartooned cat and mouse has been fiercely disputed. My parents gave me the box as a parting gift in 1977 when I left home to start my three-year degree course at Hull University Drama Department. I still like to think that the scene depicted on the box, especially the man throwing up, was Mum and Dad's subtle way of saying, yes, we know what you're going to get up to at uni, and it's okay. By 1974, I had completed a couple of years of piano lessons at a place called the Chinkford School of Music. It was an imposing house inhabited by Mrs Kirk, the teacher, and her blind elderly sister. Lessons were held in the front drawing room at a slightly worn Challon Grand Piano. With its white gloss paint long made beige by Mrs Kirk's 40-a-day habit, and its ugly cabinets displaying spode china, the room looked unchanged since VE Day. Having already worked my way through Furelis and Karcherny's piano exercises, Mrs Kirk asked me if there were any particular pieces I would like to learn. Sitting in that stuffy room reeking of stale fags, 
I gave it some thought. I would like to play Chopin's waltz in C-sharp minor, I finally said. Mrs. Kirk froze, cigarette hanging limply from her mouth and the blood drained from her face. You can't play that piece, she said. Oh, but I think I can. I used to watch my Auntie Millicent play it, so I already know it quite well. No, no, you don't understand. That piece has brought terrible bad fortune to this house. I'm sorry, I... the last time someone played Chopin's waltz in C minor, my sister went blind. At which point I did the worst thing that anyone could do. I laughed. What's so funny? Do you think it's a joke? I apologised and we continued with the lesson. But her frosty demeanour thereafter told me that my days at the Chinkford School of Music were numbered. In any case, another branch of the arts had already presented itself. I had recently sat some or other grade exam at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama on John Carpenter Street in the City of London. There I picked up a leaflet advertising the college's Saturday morning theatre classes. Mrs Kirk's strange aversion to Chopin now served as the perfect excuse to tell my parents that my piano teacher was mad and I wanted to switch to drama classes at the Guildhall. And that's when the acting bug bit. I joined the class with my school friend David Jackson. Now I come to think of it, we weren't really friends up until that point. My mother knew his mother and casually mentioned to her something about drama classes. He was far in advance of me academically, good at sports, and unlike me, he was popular. It looks a little sad now, but being befriended by an alpha male definitely upped my own social status, if only marginally. I remained awkward, acneed, weedy, easily wound up and therefore easily bullied, but life became more tolerable once it was acknowledged that I was a mate of David's. Saturday mornings at Guildhall became the focal point of my week. I caught the main line from Himes Park at four minutes past nine every Saturday and changed onto the circle line at Blackfriars. Guildhall was housed in a building which looked, and still looks, grand and imposing on the outside, but was scruffy and chaotic inside. A rabbit warren of studios and offices smelling of wax polish and dry rot, with staircases leading nowhere and a faint underfloor chatter of small rodents. It was at Guildhall that I learned the importance of finding one's tribe. Like school, I was among teens of my own age, but these ones knew about Pinter and Wesker and Edward Bond. They were kids who happily joined me or included me in queuing for cheap seats at the National Theatre or afternoons prowling the West End. There were also girls. Yes, they were gorgeous and way out of my league, but at least they knew I existed, and even laughed at my lame jokes. It finally occurred to me that my position as the most unfanciable boy in Chingford needn't necessarily be a permanent one. In my schoolwork, partly due to my dad's influence, it was in science subjects that I excelled. And right up until the sixth form, this is where I thought my future career lay. So it was with some trepidation that at 16 I announced to my parents 
that I wanted to go on stage. Mum was quite relieved that I was following something that clearly inspired me. Dad was okay with it, as long as I went via the degree route rather than drama school. Not a problem. The number of applicants to study drama at university versus the number of places was only about 300 to 1. A few universities interviewed me, but quite unexpectedly it was at Hull that I again found my tribe, and they immediately offered me a place. The fear of leaving King's Cross Station alone with a suitcase in October 1977 was nothing when set against the thrill of anticipation coupled with the joy of leaving all my Chingford adolescent baggage behind. Hull, in those pre-Humber Bridge days, was considered a backwater, with its white telephone boxes and permanent smell of either fish or the Hull brewery. It was isolated, not on the way to anywhere, and this remoteness helped forge talents and friendships that are still strong over four decades later. In the end, my three years studying drama at Hull taught me that I wasn't cut out for the life of an actor. What I was cut out for was uncertain, but that's another story. That was Life of an Actor, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.